Rene Descartes, Meditations on First Philosophy, in which are demonstrated the existence of God and the distinction between the human soul and the body. First Meditation, What Can Be Called Into Doubt. Some years ago, I was struck by the large number of falsehoods that I had accepted as true in my childhood and by the highly doubtful nature of the whole edifice that I had subsequently based on them. I realised that it was necessary, once in the course of my life, to demolish everything completely and start again right from the foundations if I wanted to establish anything at all in the sciences that were stable and likely to last. But the task looked an enormous one, and I began to wait until I should reach a mature enough age to ensure that no subsequent time of life would be more suitable for tackling such inquiries. This led me to put the project off for so long that I would now be to blame if by pondering over it any further I wasted the time still left for carrying it out. So today, I have expressly rid my mind of all worries and arranged for myself a clear stretch of free time. I am here quite alone, and at last I will devote myself sincerely and without reservation to the general demolition of my opinions. But to accomplish this, it will not be necessary for me to show that all my opinions are false, which is something I could perhaps never manage. Reason now leads me to think that I should hold back my assent from opinions which are not completely certain and indubitable just as carefully as I do from those which are patently false. So, for the purpose of rejecting all my opinions, it will be enough if I find in each of them at least some reason for doubt. And to do this, I will not need to run through them all individually which would be an endless task. Once the foundations of a building are undermined, anything built on them collapses of its own accord. So I'll go straight for the basic principles on which all my former beliefs rested. Whatever I have up till now accepted as most true, I have acquired either from the senses or through the senses. But from time to time, I have found that the senses deceive, and it's prudent never to trust completely those who have deceived us even once. Yet, although the senses occasionally deceive us with respect to objects, which are very small or in the distance, there are many other beliefs about which doubt is quite impossible, even though they are derived from the senses. For example, that I am here, sitting by the fire, wearing a winter dressing gown, holding this piece of paper in my hands, and so on. Again, how could it be denied that these hands or this whole body are mine? Unless, perhaps, I were to liken myself to a madman, whose brains are so damaged by the persistent vapours of melancholia that they firmly maintain they are kings when they are paupers or say they are dressed in purple when they are naked, or that their heads are made of earthenware, or that they are pumpkins or made of glass. But such people are insane, and I would be thought equally mad if I took anything from them as a model for myself.
A brilliant piece of reasoning. As if I were not a man who sleeps at night and regularly has all the same experiences while asleep as madmen do when awake. Indeed, sometimes even more improbable ones. How often, asleep at night, am I convinced of just such familiar events, that I am here in my dressing gown, sitting by the fire, when in fact I am lying undressed in bed. Yet, at the moment, my eyes are certainly wide awake when I look at this piece of paper. I shake my head and it's not asleep. As I stretch out and I feel my hand, I do so deliberately and I know what I'm doing. All this would not happen with such distinctness to someone asleep. Indeed, as if I did not remember other occasions when I've been tricked by exactly similar thoughts while asleep. As I think about this more carefully, I see plainly that there are never any sure signs by means of which being awake can be distinguished from being asleep. The result is that I begin to feel dazed. And this very feeling only reinforces the notion that I may be asleep. Suppose then that I am dreaming, and that these particulars, that my eyes are open, that I am now moving my head and stretching out my hands, are not true. Perhaps indeed I do not even have such hands or such a body at all. Nonetheless, it must surely be admitted that the visions which come in sleep are like paintings, which must have been fashioned in the likeness of things that are real, and hence that at least these general kinds of things, eyes, hands, head, and the body as a whole, are things which are not imaginary but are real and exist. For even when painters try to create sirens and satyrs, that with the most extraordinary body, they cannot give them natures which are new in all respects. They simply jumble up the limbs of different animals. Or, if perhaps they manage to think up something so new that nothing remotely similar has ever been seen before, something which is therefore completely fictitious and unreal, at least the colours used in the composition must be real. By similar reasoning, Although these kinds of general things, eyes, head, hands and so on, could be imaginary, it must at least be admitted that certain other simpler and more universal things are real. These are, these are as it were, the real colours from which we form all the images of things, whether true or false, that occur in our thoughts. This class appears to include corporeal nature in general and its extension, the shape of extended things, the quantity or size and number of these things, the place in which they may exist, the time through which they may endure, and so on. So a reasonable conclusion from this might be that physics, astronomy, medicine, and all other disciplines which depend on the study of composite things are doubtful while arithmetic, geometry, and other subjects of this kind, which deal only with the simplest and most general things, regardless of whether they really exist in nature or not, contain something certain and indubitable. For whether I am awake or asleep, 
2 and 3 added together are 5, and a square has no more than four sides. It seems impossible that such transparent truths should occur any suspicion of being false. And yet, firmly rooted in my mind is a long-standing opinion that there is an omnipotent God who made me the kind of creature that I am. How do I know that he has not brought it about that there is no earth, no sky, no extended thing, no shape, no size, no place, while at the same time ensuring that all these things appear to me to exist just as they do now? What is more, just as I consider that others sometimes go astray in cases where they think they have the most perfect knowledge, how do I know that God has not brought it about that I too go wrong every time I add two and three or count the sides of a square or in some even simpler matter, if that is imaginable? But perhaps God would not have allowed me to be deceived in this way since he is said to be supremely good. But if it were inconsistent with his goodness to have created me such that I am deceived all the time, it would seem equally foreign to his goodness to allow me to be deceived even occasionally. Yet this last assertion cannot be made. Perhaps there may be some who would prefer to deny the existence of so powerful a God rather than believe that everything else is uncertain. Let us not argue with them, but grant them that everything said about God is a fiction. According to their supposition, then, I have arrived at my present state by fate or chance or a continuous chain of events or by some other means, Yet since deception and error seem to be imperfections, the less powerful they make my original cause, the more likely it is that I am so imperfect as to be deceived all the time. I have no answers to these arguments, but I'm finally compelled to admit that there is not one of my former beliefs about which a doubt may not properly be raised. And this is not a flippant or ill-considered conclusion, but is based on powerful and well-thought-out reasons. So in future, I must withhold my assent from these former beliefs just as carefully as I would from obvious falsehoods, if I want to discover any certainty. But it's not enough merely to have noticed this. I must make an effort to remember it. My habitual opinions keep coming back and, despite my wishes, they capture my belief, which is, as it were, bound over to them as a result of long occupation and the law of custom. I shall never get out of the habit of confidently assenting to these opinions, so long as I suppose them to be what in fact they are, namely, highly probable opinions. Opinions which, despite the fact that they are in a sense doubtful, as has just been shown, it's still much more reasonable to believe than to deny. In view of this, I think it would be a good plan to turn my will in completely the opposite direction and deceive myself by pretending for a time that these former opinions are utterly false and imaginary. 
I shall do this until the weight of preconceived opinion is counterbalanced and the distorting influence of habit no longer prevents my judgment from perceiving things correctly. In the meantime, I know that no danger or error will result from my plan and that I cannot possibly go too far in my distrustful attitude. This is because the task now in hand does not involve action, but merely the acquisition of knowledge. I will suppose, therefore, that not God, who is supremely good and the source of truth, but rather some malicious demon of the utmost power and cunning has employed all his energies in order to deceive me. I shall think that the sky, the air, the earth, colours, shapes, sounds and all external things are merely the delusions of dreams which he has devised to ensnare my judgment. I shall consider myself as not having hands or eyes or flesh or blood or senses, but as falsely believing that I have all these things. I shall stubbornly and firmly persist in this meditation. And even if it's not in my power to know any truth, I shall at least do what is in my power. That is, resolutely guard against assenting to any falsehoods, so that the deceiver, however powerful and cunning he may be, will be unable to impose on me in the slightest degree. But this is an arduous undertaking, and a kind of laziness brings me back to normal life. I am like a prisoner who is enjoying an imaginary freedom while asleep. As he begins to suspect that he is asleep, he dreads being woken up, and goes along with the pleasant illusion as long as he can. In the same way, I happily slide back into my old opinions and dread being shaken out of them, for fear that my peaceful sleep may be followed by hard labour when I wake, and that I shall have to toil not in the light, but amid the inextricable darkness of the problems I have now raised. End of first meditation. Second meditation. The nature of the human mind and how it is better known than the body. So serious are the doubts into which I have been thrown as a result of yesterday's meditation that I can neither put them out of my mind nor see any way of resolving them. It feels as if I have fallen unexpectedly into a deep whirlpool which tumbles me around so that I can neither stand on the bottom nor swim up to the top. Nevertheless, I will make an effort and once more attempt the same path which I started on yesterday. Anything which admits of the slightest doubt I will set aside just as if I had found it to be wholly false. And I will proceed in this way until I recognize something certain, or, if nothing else, until I at least recognize for certain that there is no certainty. Archimedes used to demand just one firm and immovable point in order to shift the entire earth. So I too can hope for great things if I manage to find just one thing, however slight, that is certain and unshakable. I will suppose then that everything I see is spurious. I will believe that my memory tells me lies and that none of the things that it reports ever happened. 
I have no senses. Body, shape, extension, movement and place are chimeras. So what remains true? Perhaps just the one fact that nothing is certain. Yet apart from everything I have now just listed, how do I know that there is not something else which does not allow even the slightest occasion for doubt? Is there not a God, or whatever I may call him, who puts into me the thoughts I am now just having? But why do I think this, since I myself may perhaps be the author of these thoughts? In that case, am not I, at least, something? But I have just said that I have no senses and no body. This is the sticking point. What follows from this? Am I not so bound up with a body and with senses that I cannot exist without them? But I have convinced myself that there is absolutely nothing in the world, no sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Does it now follow that I too do not exist? No. If I convinced myself of something, then I certainly existed. But there is a deceiver of supreme power and cunning who is deliberately and constantly deceiving me. In that case, I too undoubtedly exist. If he is deceiving me and let him deceive me as much as he can, he will never bring it about that I am nothing so long as I think that I am something. So after considering everything very thoroughly, I must finally conclude that this proposition, I am, I exist, is necessarily true whenever it is put forward by me or conceived by my mind. But I do not yet have a sufficient understanding of what this I is that now necessarily exists. So I must be on my guard against carelessly taking something else to be this I, and so making a mistake in the very item of knowledge that I maintain is the most certain and evident of all. I will therefore go back and meditate on what I originally believed myself to be before I embark on this present train of thought. I will then subtract anything capable of being weakened, even minimally, by the arguments now introduced, so that what is left at the end may be exactly and only what is certain and unshakable. What then did I formerly think I was? A man? But what is a man? Shall I say a rational animal? No, for then I should have to inquire what an animal is, what rationality is, and in this way one question would lead me down a slope to other harder ones. And I do not now have the time to waste on subtleties of this kind. Instead, I propose to concentrate on what came into my thoughts spontaneously and quite naturally whenever I used to consider what I was. Well, the first thought to come to mind was that I have a face, arms, hands, and the whole mechanical structure of limbs which can be seen in a corpse, and which I call the body. The next thought was that I was nourished, that I moved about, and that I engaged in sense perception and thinking, and these actions I attributed to the soul. 
But as to the nature of this soul, either I did not think about this or else I imagined it to be something tenuous, like a wind or fire or ether, which permeated my more solid parts. As to the body, however, I had no doubts about it, but thought I knew its nature distinctly. If I had tried to describe the mental conception I had of it, I would have expressed it as follows. By a body I understand whatever has a determinable shape and a definable location and can occupy a space in such a way as to exclude any other body. It can be perceived by touch, sight, hearing, taste or smell and can be moved in various ways, not by itself, but by whatever else comes into contact with it. For, according to my judgment, the power of self-movement like the power of sensation or thought, was quite foreign to the nature of body. Indeed, it was a source of wonder to me that certain bodies were found to contain faculties of this kind. But what shall I now say that I am, when I am supposing that there is some supremely powerful and, if it is permissible to say so, malicious deceiver, who is deliberately trying to trick me in every way he can? Can I now assert that I possess even the most insignificant of all the attributes which I have just said belong to the nature of the body? I scrutinize them, think about them, go over them again, but nothing suggests itself. It is tiresome and pointless to go through the list once more. But what about the attributes I assign to the soul, nutrition and movement? Since now I do not have a body, these are mere fabrications. Sense perception? This surely does not occur without a body. And besides, when asleep, I have appeared to perceive through the senses many things which I afterwards realized I did not perceive through the senses at all. Thinking? At last I have discovered it. Thought. This alone is inseparable from me. I am. I exist. That is certain. But for how long? for as long as I am thinking. For it could be that were I totally to cease from thinking, I should totally cease to exist. At present, I am not admitting anything except what is necessarily true. I am then, in the strict sense, only a thing that thinks. That is, I am a mind or intelligence or intellect or reason, words whose meaning I have been ignorant of until now. But for all that I am, a thing which is real and which truly exists. But what kind of thing? As I have just said, a thinking thing. What else am I? I will use my imagination. I am not that structure of limbs which is called a human body. I am not even some thin vapour which permeates my limbs. Wind, fire, air, breath, or whatever I depict in my imagination. For these are things which I have supposed to be nothing. Let this supposition stand, for all that I am still something. And yet may it not perhaps be the case that these very things which I am supposing to be nothing, because they are unknown to me, are in reality identical with the I of which I am aware. I do not know. And for the moment, I shall not argue the point, since I can make judgments only about things which are known to me. I know that I exist, 
The question is, what is this I that I know? If the I I understood strictly as we have been taking it, then it's quite certain that the knowledge of it does not depend on things whose existence I am as yet unaware. So it cannot depend on any of the things which I invent in my imagination. And this very word invent shows me my mistake. It would indeed be a case of fictitious invention if I used my imagination to establish that I was something or other. For imagining is simply contemplating the shape or image of a corporeal thing. Yet now I know for certain both that I exist and at the same time that all such images and in general everything relating to the nature of the body could be mere dreams. Once this point has been grasped, to say I will use my imagination to get to know more distinctly what I am would seem to be as silly as saying I am now awake and see some truth. But since my vision is not yet clear enough, I will deliberately fall asleep so that my dreams may provide a truer and clearer representation. I thus realize that none of the things that the imagination enables me to grasp is at all relevant to this knowledge of myself which I possess, and that the mind must therefore be the most carefully diverted from such things if it is to perceive its own nature as distinctly as possible. But what then am I? A thing that thinks? What is that? A thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, is willing, is unwilling, and also imagines and has sensory perceptions? This is a considerable list. If everything on it belongs to me, but does it? Is it not one and the same I who is now doubting almost everything, who nonetheless understands some things, who affirms that this one thing is true, denies everything else, desires to know more, is unwilling to be deceived, imagines many things even involuntarily, and is aware of many things which apparently come from the senses? Are not all these things just as true as the fact that I exist, even if I am asleep all the time, and even if he who created me is doing all he can to deceive me? Which of all these activities is distinct from my thinking? Which of them can be separate from myself? The fact that it is I who am doubting and understanding and willing is so evident that I see no way of making it any clearer. But it is also the case that the I who imagines is the same I. For even if, as I have supposed, none of the objects of my imagination are real, the power of imagination is something which really exists and is part of my thinking. Lastly, it is also the same eye who has sensory perceptions or is aware of bodily things as it were through the senses. For example, I am now seeing light, hearing noise, feeling heat, but I am asleep. So this is all false. Yet I certainly seem to see, to hear and to be warmed. This cannot be false. What is called having a sensory perception is strictly just this.
and in this restricted sense of the term is simply thinking. For all this, I am beginning to have a rather better understanding of what I am. But it still appears, and I cannot stop thinking about this, that the corporeal things of which images are formed in my thought and which the senses investigate are known with much more distinctness than this puzzling eye, which cannot be pictured in the imagination. And yet it is surely surprising that I should have more distinct grasp of things which I realise are doubtful, unknown and foreign to me, than I have of that which is true, my own self. But I see what it is. My mind enjoys wandering off and will not yet submit to being restrained within the bounds of truth. Very well then, just this once let us give it to completely free reign so that after a while, when it's time to tighten the reins, it may more readily submit to being curbed. Let us consider the things which people commonly think they understand. Most distinctly of all, that is, the bodies which we touch and see. I do not mean bodies in general, for general perceptions are apt to be somewhat more confused. But one particular body. Let us take, for example, this piece of wax. It has just been taken from the honeycomb. It has not yet quite lost the taste of honey. It retains some of the scent of the flowers from which it was gathered. Its colour, shape and size are plain to see. It is hard, cold and can be handled without difficulty. If you tap it with your knuckle, it makes a sound. In short, it has everything which appears necessary to enable a body to be known as distinctly as possible. But even as I speak, I put the wax by the fire and look. The residual taste is eliminated. The smell goes away, the colour changes, the shape is lost, the size increases. It becomes liquid and hot. You can hardly touch it, and if you strike it, it no longer makes a sound. But does the same wax remain? It must be admitted that it does. No one denies it, no one thinks otherwise. So what was it in the wax that I understood with such distinctness? Evidently none of the features which I arrived at by means of the senses. For whatever came under taste, smell, sight, touch or hearing has now altered. And yet the wax remains. Perhaps the answer lies in the thought which now comes to my mind. Namely, the wax was not, after all, the sweetness of the honey, or the fragrance of the flowers, or the whiteness, or the shape, or the sound, but was rather a body which presented itself to me in these various forms a little while ago, but which now exhibits different ones. But what exactly is it that I'm now imagining? Let us concentrate, take away everything which does not belong to the wax, and see what is left, merely something extended, flexible, and changeable. But what is meant here by flexible and changeable? Is it what I picture in my imagination, that this piece of wax is capable of changing from a round shape to a square shape, or from a square shape to a triangular shape? Not at all. 
for I can grasp that the wax is capable of countless changes of this kind. Yet, I am unable to run through this immeasurable number of changes in my imagination, from which it follows that it is not the faculty of imagination that gives me grasp of the wax as flexible and changeable. And what is meant by extended is the extension of the wax also unknown? For it increases if the wax melts, increases again if it boils, and is greater still if the heat is increased. I would not be making a correct judgment about the nature of wax unless I believed it capable of being extended in many more different ways than I will ever encompass in my imagination. I must therefore admit that the nature of this piece of wax is in no way revealed by my imagination, but is perceived by the mind alone. I am speaking of this particular piece of wax. The point is even clearer with regards to wax in general. But what is this wax which I perceived by the mind alone? It is, of course, the same wax which I see, which I touch, which I picture in my imagination. In short, the same wax which I thought it to be from the start. And yet, here is the point. The perception I have of it is a case not of vision or touch or imagination, nor has it ever been, despite previous appearances, but purely mental scrutiny. And this can be imperfect and confused as it was before, or clear and distinct as it is now, depending on how carefully I concentrate on what the wax consists in. But as I reach this conclusion, I am amazed at how weak and prone to error my mind is. For although I am thinking about these matters within myself, silently and without speaking, nonetheless, the actual words bring me up short, and I am almost tricked by ordinary ways of talking. We say that we see the wax itself, if it is there before us, not that we judge it to be there from its colour and shape. And this might lead me to conclude, without more ado, that knowledge of the wax comes from what the eye sees and not from the scrutiny of the mind alone. But then if I look out the window and see men crossing the square, as I just happen to have done, I normally say that I see the men themselves, just as I say that I see the wax. Yet do I see any more than hats and coats which could conceal automatons? I judge that they are men, and so something which I judge I was seeing with my eyes is in fact grasped solely by the faculty of judgment which is my mind. However, one who wants to achieve knowledge above the ordinary level should feel ashamed to have taken ordinary ways of talking as a basis for doubt. So let us proceed and consider on which occasion my perception of the nature of wax was more perfect and evident. Was it when I first looked at it and believed I knew it by external senses, or at least by what they call the common sense, that is the power of imagination, or is my knowledge more perfect now, after a more careful investigation of the nature of the wax and of the means by which it is known? Any doubt on this issue would clearly be foolish. For what distinctness was there in my earlier perception? Was there anything 
in it which an animal could not possess. But when I distinguish the wax from its outward forms, take the clothes off, as it were, and consider it naked, then, although my judgment may still contain errors, at least my perception now requires a human mind. But what am I to say about this mind or about myself? So far, remember, I am not admitting that there is anything else in me except a mind. What I ask is this. I, which seems to perceive the wax so distinctly, surely my awareness of my own self is not merely much truer and more certain than my awareness of the wax, but also much more distinct and evident. For if I judge that the wax exists from the fact that I see it, clearly this same fact entails much more evidently that I myself also exist. It is possible that what I see is not really the wax. It is possible that I do not even have eyes with which to see anything. But when I see, or think I see, I am not here distinguishing between the two, it is simply not possible that I, who am now thinking, am not something. By the same token, if I judge the wax exists, from the fact that I touch it, the same result follows, namely that I exist. If I judge that it exists from the fact that I imagine it, or for any other reason, exactly the same thing follows. And the result that I have grasped in the case of the wax may be applied to everything else located outside me. Moreover, if my perception of the wax seems more distinct after it was established, not just by sight or touch, but by many other considerations. It must be admitted that I now know myself even more distinctly. This is because every consideration whatsoever which contributes to my perception of the wax or of any other body cannot but establish even more effectively the nature of my own mind. But besides this, there is so much else in the mind itself which can serve to make my knowledge of it more distinct, that it scarcely seems worth going through the contributions made by considering bodily things. I see that without any effort, I have now finally got back to where I wanted. I now know that even bodies are not strictly perceived by the senses or the faculty of imagination, but by intellect alone, and that this perception derives not from their being touched or seen, but from their being understood. And in view of this, I know plainly that I can achieve an easier and more evident perception of my own mind than of anything else. But since the habit of holding on to old opinions cannot be set aside so quickly, I should like to stop here and meditate for some time on this new knowledge I've gained so as to fix it more deeply in my memory. End of second meditation. The sixth meditation. First, I know that everything which I clearly and distinctly understand is capable of being created by God, so as to correspond exactly with my understanding of it. Hence the fact that I can clearly and distinctly understand one thing apart from another is enough to make me certain that the two things are distinct.
since they are capable of being separated, at least by God. The question of what kind of power is required to bring about such a separation does not affect the judgment that the two things are distinct. Thus, simply by knowing that I exist and seeing at the same time that absolutely nothing else belongs to my nature or essence except that I am a thinking thing, I can infer correctly that my essence consists solely in the fact that I am a thinking thing. It is true that I may have, or to anticipate that I certainly have, a body that is closely joined to me. But nevertheless, on the one hand, I have a clear and distinct idea of myself. Insofar as I am simply a thinking, non-extended thing, and on the other hand, I have a distinct idea of a body, insofar as this is simply an extended, non-thinking thing. And accordingly, it is certain that I am really distinct from my body and can exist without it.